Mark chapter 5, and just to give a context of what we're going to talk about tonight, so first 20 verses we talked about last time, Jesus had gotten in a boat, he'd crossed the Sea of Galilee, ended up in the country of the Gadarenes, and was met by a demon-possessed man that I would say was a little less than human. Uh, he couldn't even be tamed like a wild animal. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus delivered that man of thousands of demons that were in him. And the remarkable thing we said was the townspeople, instead of being overjoyed that their friend had been delivered, and you would think they'd ask Jesus to stay and, hey, can you do something for me and help me out? Instead, what'd they do? They asked him, would you leave? And Jesus, being the gentleman that he was, he got back in the boat and retraced his steps. He went across the lake and returned to Capernaum. And there he is met by a huge crowd. And in that crowd, we'll see today, were two people that had one big thing in common. And what it was, was they were in desperate situations, both of them, desperate and hopeless circumstances. And situations that had a lot of obstacles in the ways that they had to overcome. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, because the title of the message is, True Faith Overcomes All Obstacles. So, we'll look beginning in verse 21. And it says in Mark 5, 21, when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray you, come and lay hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may but touch his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, You see the multitude thronging thee, and you're saying, Who touched me? And he looked round about. He kept looking to see her that had done this thing. And but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. And while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeing the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make you this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and those that were with him and entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked. 
for she was of the age of 12 years. And, there were, and they were astonished with great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Well, let's pray. Father, I just ask that you'll, by your spirit tonight, just increase our faith and, and show us, Lord, some of the obstacles that we need to overcome. And if we'll do that, Lord, we will see your faithfulness and we'll see your hand in our lives and the great deliverance that you'll rock for us, your people. And I thank you that you'll do that for us tonight in Jesus' name. So, you know, there's people in the world, all over the world, that are in desperate situations. I mean, you've got wars, famines, everything Jesus talked about, earthquakes, natural disasters, people that are broke and destitute, marital strife going on, disease, situations where the obstacles are overwhelming and unsolvable. And many times, things don't end well. A lot of times for people in the world, it ends up in death, unending poverty, divorce, whatever. But lust, the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ promises us, his people, what? Deliverance from the curse, right? And the works of the devil. Because we know First John said Jesus came to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. Now we hasten to add, that doesn't mean freedom from suffering or freedom from trials. We're promised suffering and we're going to have trials to increase our faith. But ultimately, what are we promised as God's children? Righteousness, peace, and joy, right? And life, we've been talking about that in Romans, life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that includes, as we saw last week, freedom from demonic oppression, not only for ourselves, our families, and we can help set others free through the Holy Spirit that lives within us, right? But also healing, as we'll see today, and a long, satisfying life, excluding martyrdom, right? But that doesn't count. But otherwise, God promises to give us a long, satisfied life, doesn't he? It's Psalm 91. Amen. That's what we're trusting him for. But what's the key ingredient duh, that has to be added to those promises? What's the key ingredient? What didn't Israel mix in to the promises God gave them? Faith. I mean, pretty basic here, right? But listen, true faith is not passive. It's not passive. All the saints you read about in Hebrews 11, they took action. Their trust in God calls them to do something, right? And it says, they who through faith, they subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised back to life again. And he goes on and on and on. And so what did the Lord say? So it's not for the weak and the fearful and the cowards. Christianity is not. And walk in this walk that we've been taught on what the New Testament and the Old Testament presents. Because Jesus said that the kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Right. Obstacles have to be overcome. And that's what the saints we read about in Hebrews 11 had to do. They had to take their faith or trust in God and overcome obstacles. And we're going to see that tonight in these two stories that the Lord has woven together. Two stories of faith. And so 
Our theme tonight is true faith overcomes all obstacles placed in its way. And we're going to look at three of them tonight. The obstacle, first of all, of pride. And the second one, the obstacle of unbelief. And thirdly, we're going to look at the obstacle of circumstances. So first, the faith will overcome the obstacle of pride. And look in verse 22. It says, And behold, there come one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Well, what we need to see there is Jairus was no small person. He was the ruler of the synagogue coming. And so that means he's in charge of organizing the worship in the synagogue. The scripture reading, the worship, he upkept the building. And that was a great position of honor and prestige. Mostly it was Pharisees that did that. Whether Jairus was a Pharisee or not, I don't know. But here's the thing. Everybody would have known who he was. And that's why he's named, and the woman with the issue of blood is not. So listen, he's in the synagogue. Now, we've been seeing Jesus in this synagogue in Capernaum, where he's the ruler of it. He would have been there in Mark chapter 1. He would have been sitting there, listening to our Lord teach, it says, with authority and an anointing. And the people are just, their jaws are dropping. We've never heard anything like that. He would have been sitting there hearing this demonic spirit, unclean spirit, cry out of this man. And he would have seen the Lord tell him to, and and really, he told him, just shut up and come out of that man. He would have been there watching that. And the crowd saying, who is this? He would have been one of them too. But he was there when that happened. And he would have heard about the cleansing of the leopard. He would have heard all the reports that were going around about Jesus. All the healings that our Lord was doing. All the deliverance that was taking place. And later in Mark 3, he would have been there in the synagogue when the man with the withered hand was told to stand up by Jesus in front of everyone. He would have been there. And he would have seen that remarkable miracle, creative miracle that took place. Bones and sinews, whatever had to take place for that man's hand, bam, to be instantly restored. He would have seen all of that. But here's the thing. He's in charge of the synagogue. He would have also had close contact with, and he probably would have been friends with who? The Pharisees. (laughs) So he'd have been well aware When they got together after that man with the withered hand was restored, what does it say we read there? They made plans to destroy Jesus. He would have been well aware, might have even been involved in hearing and overhearing those plans. Been well aware of it. Their contempt and hatred. So he knows, here's something he knows, to approach the Lord with these guys and and his position, he's going to be in trouble, right? He's going to be in trouble. To ask him to come to his house and help him is going to get him cut off from the synagogue. He's going to lose the support of the Pharisees. He's going to lose his place in the community, this place of honor that he probably worked hard to get. And, I mean, that community of Capernaum, it wasn't a big community. Everybody would have known everybody else. So that would have been a tremendous price to pay for him to ask Jesus and very humbling, and what about his wife? So what a blow to his pride to approach the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, look what we read in verse 22. There cometh to him the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and it says, and when he saw him, he did what? It says he fell at his feet. He's prostrate on the ground in front of this uneducated carpenter from Nazareth, the ruler of the synagogue. 
that his friends despised. And it goes on to say in verse 23, he besought him greatly. The New King James says, begging earnestly. He's just not at his feet. He is begging him to come and help him out. What has driven this man to this point that he's willing to do this? It's desperation, isn't it? And listen, that is how people receive things from the Lord generally, isn't it? Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. I mean, you have to be thirsty to want to be filled with the Spirit and willing to speak in tongues. Amen? Because a lot of people, they're just not that thirsty. And they're not going to give up their pride to get it. But desperation drives you, doesn't it? It brings humility. This guy has got a little girl at the point of death. That's what it says at the end of verse 23. He says, hey, I pray you please come and lay hands on her that she may be healed. And he says, and so that she can live. I mean, she was just already there. Already there to the point of death. And nothing's going to break a father's heart, everybody that's got little girls more than when his little girl is in trouble. And Luke tells us that that was his only child, his one little daughter. And so Jairus knows something. Here's how he's overcoming this obstacle of pride. He knows something. There is only one person because of what all he's seen. There's only one person that can help his daughter. So guess what he does? He throws his pride away and he is there prostrate kneeling before the Lord Jesus Christ begging his help. He's saying, I've seen what you can do. Only you can help me. The power is in your touch and in your hand, right? So please come to my house. Please, I beg you, come to my house and lay hands on my little girl so she can live. I don't care about my pride anymore. My little girl's going to die. You ever been there with your kids? Or your wife or your spouse or a relative or anyone, right? Or an unsaved person. They're going to perish. God, please, extend your hand on them. Grant them repentance or they'll die. That's what happens. So he had what you call the humility of faith. And God always responds when he sees that, when he sees true humility. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But to this man, God says, will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. God says, I'll never turn that man away or woman. And listen, we're talking about the humility of faith. In 1 Peter 5, 5 to 7, he says, God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Get rid of your pride. And know if you cast yourself under the mighty hand of God. One time I was praying, I had a vision. I don't have visions. I guess you could call it that. A mind picture of God in his mighty hand. And I'm underneath that praying, asking him for help in a situation. And he'll give it to us. Really? Casting all your care. And he goes on to say, the devil is the one going about as a roaring lion. Humble yourself under God and then you can resist him when you're in that position. Steadfast in the faith. That's what we have to do. But listen, so pride, faith will overcome that, overcome that obstacle. But pride has stopped many people from believing. 
many people. Why do you think it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 27, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised. God has chosen. Why? Because no pride, no flesh, it says, is going to glory in his presence. You want to walk with God? You want to make it in the end times? You want to see his face like it talks about in the book of Revelation? And see that glory and be there? Pride's got to go for all of us. Amen. That's what the Bible teaches. So listen, there was many chief rulers like Jairus. You know that? It says that in the Bible. Who saw Jesus perform miracles. They even believed that he was who he said it was. Yet, what kept them from believing? It says their pride. If you put something there in Mark, I'd like us to see this. This is worth seeing. John chapter 12. If you would turn over there, please. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 42 to 43. Okay, and it says, John 12, 42, it says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. They knew who he was. But, it says, because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Why? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. What does it say in verse 43? This is the reason why they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Pride, isn't it? They wanted people to think more highly of them than they cared about what God thought. And Jairus was past that. But a lot of these other rulers had said they knew who he was. But because of the Pharisees, they did not want to get put out. Right? So Proverbs 29, 25, we used to quote this quite a bit. The fear of man, it'll bring a snare. Caring what people think. Having pride, caring what people think. The fear of man brings a snare. But whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. That's a great scripture to remember, right? Amen. A lot of times when you think, what's somebody going to think? We just forget it. I'm going to trust the Lord. They'll probably think the worst. Who cares? Amen. Because let's be honest. When we're trusting God for healing, for finances, and other things, a big obstacle in your line, if you say it's not, that you have to overcome is what are others going to think about me if this doesn't work? It's there. I'm not saying you give into it. But it's there. It's something that you have to come. You think, man, I could be put in jail. The community will hate me. My own family will disown me. I've had those thoughts. Yeah. You better, be, you better know that things are right between me and the Lord. I'm going to take this step because I'm trusting the Lord. Amen. That's, right. that's the way it is. So Jesus was what? What did he have to overcome? He had to overcome what people thought. He had to overcome that. You go back to Mark and look what it says in verse 39. He came to that ruler's house to raise his daughter, and he told him, he says, she's not sleeping. Why make you this much ado, verse 39, and weep? She's not dead, but she's just sleeping. And look what it says they did to him in verse 40. They laughed him to scorn. And guess what? Guess who's standing right behind him, whose house he's at? And then guess what he knows is going to get out? He, that girl isn't up yet. Jairus, he's having to deal with the same thing. He doesn't care, though, at this point, right? He's holding on. 
So that's the thing. It's just something we have to overcome, isn't it? It really is. You know, when Lisa and I were going to have a baby at the grand old age of 47, I mean, you'd have thought we were going to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Some of the people at one school she's sharing things with, and they want to remind you, people are going to remind you of every case that turned out bad of somebody having a baby at age 47. And that's all you hear, and all the terrible results. And then when you add, well, where are you having it? Oh, we're having our baby at home. The conversation totally ends there, right? And you know this stuff's going on, and it's, it's something you've got to overcome. And it's a warfare. And it's the violent have to take it by force. And you've got to know that God is faithful, and I'm determined to trust him, and I can, right? He is faithful. So listen, talking about pride, how you've got to overcome it, it's a familiar story. Here again, put something in Mark. I think it's worth us looking at tonight. If you would turn over to 2 Kings 5, it's a classic story of overcoming pride to receive from the Lord. The story of Naaman. Naaman, and we look at 2 Kings 5, beginning in verse 1, and it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria, and he was also a mighty man in valor. But he had a problem. He was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel, unregenerate king of Israel, had read the letter, he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore I consider, I pray you, and see how he seeks a quarrel against me. I can't do it. He just wanted to fight with me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore have you rent your clothes? Just let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Naaman was wroth. And went away and said, Behold, I thought he surely, in his pride, he says this, he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. In his pride, in verse 13, and his servants came there and they spake unto him and they said, listen, we'll give you a little friendly advice. My father, if the prophet had bid you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much rather when he says unto thee, just do this, this humbling thing, wash and be clean. In verse 14, then he named and went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God 
And his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, he had to overcome, in this story, pride from beginning to end. Because you know what sent him to Israel? The word of a little girl. And who likes to, who as an adult likes to have some little kid tell him what to do? Right? I mean, it's bad enough it had been an uh, Israeli adult, but here's some little servant girl, a maiden girl. Oh, if you would just go over there, there's a prophet, he'll heal you. Like, oh, sure, right. Uh huh. You know, wash some more dishes. Well, no. Somehow God's hand was in this, but he had to overcome his pride even in that, did he not? And then he's got to go do something that nobody would want to do. I've been there. The Jordan River is filthy, and yet you see people wanting to get baptized in it because it's something special about it. It's just still just a dirty river. That's what it is. But listen, many times God will ask us to do humiliating things to receive from him. We've got to be willing to do that if we want to see his hand. And we've got to hear his voice to know what to do because he's not going to tell everybody the same thing. We could go on with testimony after testimonies about people receiving healings and God asked them to do strange things. Right? But we have to overcome our pride in other ways too, not just to receive healing and deliverance. What about to ask others for forgiveness? To obey the Lord, that takes faith in a lot of ways. A lot of times it's not easy to ask others for forgiveness when you sinned against them. Because you have to trust that somehow God's going to honor what you've done and work everything out. And I would say living the whole Sermon on the Mount will kill your pride. It will. So you don't respond in anger when others provoke you. And if you do, you have to go and leave your gift and go and reconcile yourself with them, not taking an oath when everybody else is and you're saying, no, I, I, I do what the Lord says and he just says for me to let my yea be yea, my yes to be yes, and my no to be no. Loving your enemies, praying for them, blessing them. Why? You have to trust that somehow God is going to reward you for that, right? That he'll make everything okay. Giving alms in secret because your pride wants to say, look what I did. That's what the world does. And yet he says, you do your alms in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And he says, God will reward you. Your father will see in secret. That takes faith. Fasting in secret. Not letting anybody know what's going on. It takes faith got to kill your pride. You want to let everybody know what you're sacrificing for the kingdom of God. Oh, I haven't eaten for a while. Right? Trust for God to reward you, not looking for the praise of men. And listen, it's impossible to walk faithful to God in this world, especially in America, this wicked world we live in, without overcoming that obstacle of pride. It is, because people are going to think you're weird when they realize how you live. So the second thing, going back to Mark, we see here, this second obstacle we want to look at is that faith will overcome the obstacle of unbelief. And one thing I want to say, I want to look at first is, so a lot of times we, we think that Jesus doesn't care about us individually, right? <laughs> and here's the thing, we have got to believe that God does care, right? Amen. Twice in this account, we see Jesus he comes on that shore, and it says a huge crowd meets him. They're mobbing him, right? Twice it happens in, in that account where the mob is all over him, and he focuses on two individual needs out of all these needs that are surrounding him, right? So in the big picture, you think about it. You think God doesn't care about your needs? Well, he sure cared about these two people. 
Because in his providence, in his sovereign providence, Jesus goes across that lake to the sea. And he is over there in the gathering place. And those people over there, what do they say? We don't want you here. We don't need your help. And so what happens? He gets back in his boat because God sends him back to where there's a couple people that desperately need his help. And one, they are, that man, that Jairus, his daughter dies while all this goes on. He desperately needed help. But God in his providence sent the Lord back there, didn't he? And that's what he'll do for us. We have to see that. He didn't say, you know, when Jairus came up to him, man, can't you see? I got hundreds of people around here I'm trying to deal with and help out. You know, who are you to meet your little individual need? No. Jesus came, we have to see, to minister to human needs. And he'll minister to yours and mine because he cares about us. We just read it. I quoted it in 1 Peter. Doesn't he? He cares about us. So he's going to minister to this one individual and another one stops him. Right? The woman, desperate situation. Another humble person. You know what's funny? She gets what she wants from the Lord, didn't she? She got that healing that she was after. And she was probably embarrassed to face him. Because she had an issue of blood. She was unclean. She wasn't supposed to be around all these people. And she knew he was a righteous man. And if you read the story, Jairus comes up to him and bows at his feet. What did she do? She came up behind him, it says. And she's on the ground, too. <laughs> she's humble, too. Touching the fringe of that garment. But she's coming up behind him. So she gets what she wants. But the interesting thing is, once she gets it, he is as intent on finding her as she was on getting to him. She had to fight through that crowd to get to him. And we need to see that. He cared about her. He could have just let her go, couldn't he? And it says he's looking around in that crowd. And in the Greek, it's saying he just keeps looking. Just keeps looking. Who is it that touched me? Power's gone out of him. He wants to know who the recipient is. Look, look in verse 30. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself, he knew that virtue, power had gone out of him. He's turning about in the press, and he's asking, who touched my clothes? He's looking, and the disciples said to him, you see a multitude? What are you doing? Why sayest thou, who touched me? And it says there that he just kept looking, looking round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him, told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made you whole. Go in peace. You're healed of your plague. He's saying, Can't you see? All these people are around you, and you're looking for some woman. What is the big deal? <laughs> the big deal is the woman wanted to be cured, but Jesus wants to encounter a person. So he wants a relationship with this woman. He does. This man said this. I thought this was really good. He says, in the kingdom of God, miracles lead to meetings between the person and the Lord. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It is being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It is being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. And we we're talking to me and some brothers were talking last night. 
we're discussing that if you just reduce faith to a formula or a set of principles, and the principles are valid, if you reduce faith to that, you're missing the whole point of salvation. You really are. Because God wants us to come to him as a person, not just as a dispenser of gifts. Amen? Amen? And that might be a lot of problems, a lot of the reasons we're having problems. Because healing, deliverance, eternal life, they are not separate gifts. They're all in a person. They're in him. The Lord Jesus, and they're found in a relationship with him. And listen, without that relationship, the principles don't work. They don't work. And that was Asa's problem. We talk about Asa. I'm going to talk about him again a little bit more. Because when Asa was seeking the Lord, and when you're seeking the Lord, that means you're seeking him to obey him, to do what he's asking you to do, to have that relationship with him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And he was doing that, seeking the Lord, obeying him, walking in the light he had. And guess what he had as a result of that? His faith was strong because he knew God was with him. And that prophet Azariah said to Asa in Judah, here's what he said. Listen again. We quoted this not too long ago. I'm going to quote it again. He said, hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But... If you forsake him, he will forsake you. And we see that exactly worked out in Asa's life. So when he and Judah were seeking the Lord earnestly, a million Ethiopians were no match for their faith. But we read towards the end of his life when he quit seeking the Lord. And what happens when you do that? Your relationship goes by the wayside. Goes by the wayside, and guess what you lose? What Asa lost? Asa lost his faith. And the prophet appears to him and says this to him in his latter years, because you have relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, there is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thy hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubans a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet... Because you did rely on the Lord, and that came as a result of his relationship. Because you did rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. And here's our famous verse. He goes on to say, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. Or you could say, holy his. It's not saying you have to be perfect it just means your heart is, Lord, I want to follow you and do what you say. I'm seeking you, putting you first. You may make a mistake here and there, and you probably will. All of us will. That's not the point. But your point is, you're after him. You're seeking him. We know what we're talking about, amen? amen. Everybody knows what we're talking about. So God wants us to keep our relationship with him our top priority. And the gifts will flow from that freely unbelief, and this is what we need to get hold of as a church, unbelief comes as a la from a lack of consecration to the Lord. If your consecration is not there, you can be putting all the principles into practice, and it's not going to work. That's just the principle of the Bible. We just talked about it with Asa. And A.B. Simpson 
A.B. Simpson had a great ministry of divine healing. He was a very godly man. His divine healing book is well worth getting. And a lot of his books are really good. But he has a book, uh, a book I have, it's called The Best of A.B. Simpson. Now, he didn't write that. Here's the best of my writings, the best of A.B. Simpson. <laughs> Somebody put him together. But the opening chapter of that book, it's called Himself. And the whole idea behind that chapter is A.B. Simpson's like, I'm chasing after all these gifts. And yet, I'm realizing it's Jesus himself is what I need. And so listen to what he says. He goes, let me focus your thoughts on Jesus and Jesus only. Often I hear people say, I wish I could get hold of divine healing, but I cannot. I hear others exclaim, I have got it. But when I ask, what have you got? They do not really know. Sometimes they answer, I've got the blessing, or I've got the healing, or I've got sanctification. And he says, I thank God it is not the blessing or the healing, not the sanctification, not the thing or the it that we want, but someone far better. We want Christ, Christ himself. Now, is he saying there's anything? I mean, this guy wrote the best book, one of the best books on divine healing. That's not what he's saying. We hear what he's saying, don't we? We don't want the gift without the giver is the point. I mean, how, Ray Comfort used to use this example. He'd come home, he bought his kids a TV, and he comes home from work or wherever he's at, and they're glued to the TV. They're glued on the gift, and they won't give him the time of day. And he tells them, he goes and turns the TV off, is I got you this for your pleasure or whatever. But if that gift comes between you and me and our relationship, the TV's out the door. And that's what God would say to us. We've got to want the giver himself more than the gift. He says, we want Christ, Christ himself. And then he quotes here, listen to Matthew 8, 17. Himself, himself took our infirmities. Jesus himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. That's what Matthew 8, 17 said. And he said, A.B. Simpson, I thought that healing would be an it. He said, it was not so at all. I found it was Jesus himself coming into my life, giving me what I needed at that moment. I thought that was good. He wrote a song. He wrote a song called Himself. Once it was the giver, now it is himself I want, or the gift, however it went. I didn't write the song then. So, hey, we were talking last night. I think I might have been doing most of the talking, but anyways, they, they, whatever. But, you know, think about Revelation 3 for a minute and that church at Laodicea. What did he tell them? He says, and they were, they were a rich city. He says, you say I'm rich, I'm increased with goods. I have need of nothing. They had healing waters there. And he says, no, you don't, you don't get it. Because the one thing you're leaving out is me. He says, you're naked, blind, you're really miserable. And I counsel thee to buy all these different things from me, spiritual things. But he goes on to say, here's what you're really missing, that you need to repent. He says, behold, Jesus said to them, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door I will come into him, and I will sup with him, and he with me. He said, that is what you need more than anything else. And everything else will flow from that, right? Seeking the Lord with all of our hearts, wanting to please him with our lives. All right, so back to Mark 5. The second way I want to see here that unbelief is overcome, that obstacle. God helps Jairus here. So when the woman is healed, look what happens here in 
verse 33, it says, When the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him, Jesus. And what does it say she did there at the very end? It says she told her whole story, told all the truth. She gave her testimony right there. And she's talking about, man, this started 12 years ago. And this is all the things that have happened to me since then. It's been continuous. I've been ostracized. It's been a lonely life. She's telling all of these things. It was desperate. I I was a rich woman at one time. I had wealth. I have nothing now. And things had gotten worse. And he's hearing. Guess who's hearing all this? And she says, and yet, I heard about you, Lord. I heard about the things you did. And I came up and I touched the hem of your garment. And power came into me. Power from you changed everything in a moment. And the disciples are hearing that. Jesus is hearing that. And most importantly of all, Jairus is hearing that. Because he's got a worse desperate situation facing him. And that's got to be encouraging him at that point. Wouldn't you say? Got to be encouraging him. But then the bad news came. Just a few verses later, verse 35, And while he yet spake to that woman, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead, Jairus. Why trouble the master any further? That had to be a dagger in his heart, didn't it? I think it was. And look at verse 36, though. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And so I'm saying God will help us overcome that obstacle of unbelief. He's right there to help us, right? He has this woman share this testimony. Jairus hears that. Then when this bad report comes, why trouble? That's a totally negative report. They're like, it's it's no use anymore. No one does anything with dead people. And it says as soon as he hears that, Jesus is right there encouraging him. Jairus, listen to me. Look at me. Don't fear Don't be afraid, only believe, is what he's telling him, right? You know, it's funny, that word for heard can mean three different things. It's not your typical word for hearing. It can mean to overhear something, it can mean to ignore something, or it can mean to refuse to listen to what somebody's saying. And I think all three of those apply to when Jesus heard that negative report, right? He overheard something. We we know that. He's ignoring what they're saying, and he's saying, hey, I'm not listening to that. And you don't need to either, Jairus. That's not the way it's going to be. I think it meant all three. And so Jesus, listen, we need to know he will give us words of encouragement to believe. Because God's voice when you're in a trial and things are right is not one to discourage you or put you in unbelief. That's not what the Lord's done. That's not his ministry. And so, in fact, in this story here, he is teaching us how to deal with unbelief and unbelief of others. So look down in verse 37. When he goes to that house after he says, be not afraid, only believe, he only allowed, it says he allowed no man to follow him except for his inner circle. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And down in verse 40, after he tells them, what are you weeping for? The damsel's not dead, but asleep. They would hire professional mourners back then. And these people are unbelievers. And they're mourners. And they go from that when they hear what he says. They're mocking him. Look in verse 40. They laughed him to scorn. And so what does he do with these unbelievers? He says, but when he had put them all out, you get rid of unbelief. You're trusting God. That is not what you want to hear. 
You've got to get rid of unbelief or it's going to drag you down. It really will. So, Peter learned from that, I think. He did learn from that. And one thing I did want to say, too. So when I'm in a trial, I heard this years back, and it's helped me ever since. I'm very careful about who I tell I'm in a trial about, especially if it's serious. I'm very careful about that because I don't want somebody... We don't need to be diagnosing each other's trials. Amen? We're not doctors here. We don't need to be diagnosing other people's trials. Just pray for them that God will strengthen their faith. And listen, Peter learned, I started to say he learned from Jesus because over in Acts 9, that woman Tabitha died, right? And they asked him, get over here quickly. And Peter gets there and they had her body all cleaned up and laid in this upper room, upper chamber. And he gets there, he did what, what Jesus did, what he'd seen him do. It says, Peter put them all out and kneeled down and prayed. And turning him to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. But what did he do? He got the unbelief out of that room. And he prayed. And that is how he found out God's will. Because you're not going to find that out when you've got all kinds of noise around you. And sometimes that's what happens. The devil's speaking to you. You've got other people speaking to you. Your circumstances are screaming at you. You need to just get alone. Get away from the voices and get alone and pray. And let God give you that peace that passes all understanding. Sometimes you've got to press in for that and dealing with everything. And then you'll have that knowing Hey, everything is fine. He'll do that. That's what Bevington did. Get alone and pray, and God will speak to you. Right? And you'll hear Jesus say this in your heart. You'll have it. It'll spit in your heart. Don't be afraid. Only believe. That's what you'll hear him saying. So that's what has to happen, because sometimes the master's voice may tell you when you get alone, too. He may say, well, you need to repent of a few things, Right? That's James chapter 5. Call for the elders of the church. Let them pray. It says, and if he has sins, they shall be forgiven him. So that's somebody in a serious trial. And it may be you need to repent. But then he'll tell you to hold on to me, though, and tell you to give up, that I'm not going to heal you. That's James 5. The Lord says he'll still raise him up. If a sin got you in that place, he said, it shall be forgiven. You keep trusting him. And so what we need to remember here is another thing out of this story is there's an order to how faith works. And we see that with this woman with the issue of blood. Look in verses 27 to 29. She heard of Jesus. You have to hear the word. Came in the press behind and touched his garment. And for she said, here it is. It's got to be faith, fact, and feeling. And here's the faith. She said, if I may but touch his clothes. That's her faith speaking. I shall be whole. And then... The next thing, verse 29, straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. That's the fact that took place. And then thirdly, here's the feeling. And she felt in her body that she was healed of their plague. And you can't get them out of order. So many times people are praying, they're looking for the feeling. It's got to be faith, then fact, and the last thing you'll have is the manifestation or the feeling. You can't get them turned around, amen? And so how do we touch the hem of Jesus' garment? It's Mark eleven twenty four. We've heard all these years, isn't it? You've got to press through all the doubt, all the pride, all the unbelief. Get hold of his garment in prayer. And that power will come. It'll come. 
1 John 5, 14 and 15, great promise. Bevington quoted it all the time. This is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that, if we know that he hears us, then we know we already have the petition that we desired of him. We have it, not waiting for it. Amen? Amen. Faith, fact, feeling. And so the last obstacle we want to look here in Mark chapter 5 is the last obstacle that faith will overcome is circumstances. And all three of the cases that we have here in Mark chapter 5 are totally hopeless cases. The demoniac was hopeless. This woman with the issue of blood had no hope. Jairus' daughter, no hope. They had exhausted all help. This woman with the issue of blood, look in verse 26. She'd suffered many things of many positions, had spent all she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. Like I said, wealthy at one time, and she is flat out broke for many positions. When it's all said and done, with the help from man, she's no better off. She's worse, isn't she? And Psalm 121 says, I'll lift up mine eye to the hills. Is that where your help comes from? Not hers. From whence comes my help, the psalmist says. My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. And this woman realized it. She'd been to the hills. She'd lifted up her eyes to the hills, and she realized there's no help there, not for her. She realized her help had to come from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. A song we used to sing, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Amen? Amen. Oh, boy, that was a time you had your Bibles thrown all up in the air all over the place. And praise God, it still will be. And it's the same with Jairus. His circumstances were getting worse by the minute also. You think about it. He had to be overcoming walking with Jesus. Yeah, he's going to come lay hands on his daughter, and all of a sudden, here's this woman. And he's got to find this woman all of a sudden. You know, my daughter is like at the point of death, and you're looking for this woman. And then once you find her, now you've got to talk to her. I've got to stand here and listen to her testimony. How many testimonies have we heard here lately, right? Then you got to talk to her, you know. The bad news then comes. Your daughter is dead. Don't even bother Jesus anymore. I mean, man, oh, man. But as soon as Jesus heard that, he steps in. Like we said, he stepped in. And what did he do in doing that? He's saying, don't be afraid, only believe. He's getting that man's focus off the word he heard and off the circumstances that he knew about, right? And where's he getting that focus on? What's Jesus doing when he says that? He's getting the focus back on himself. Because I would think he probably, when that news came, wouldn't you think he probably, because this is what I would do to try to encourage somebody, he probably touched the man's arm, right? And there would have been an anointing on those words that he spoke. I guarantee that. And an assurance would have come from the Holy Spirit when that man heard those words. Witness with Jairus' heart. And he probably, if that was me and Jesus is talking to you, I'd have been looking in his eyes when he said that. He would have been looking right in his eyes. And he would have realized through the words, the touch, this is someone I can trust. Jesus is getting his eyes off what he heard, off the circumstances, and onto himself. Isn't that how Peter missed it? He got his eyes off of Jesus, and he's looking at those circumstances, and that is when he sunk. And that's what the Lord's doing here, stepping in, helping this man. Turn your eyes as we sing. 
upon Jesus look full in his marvelous face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Right? And that's something when we get in a trial for people that are stepping out and trusting the Lord, we have to face that. Do we believe in the circumstances and what others are speaking to us about our circumstances? Or do we believe in the God who pledges his word, who gives us his solemn promise? Hasn't he done that? Is God a liar? He's given us his solemn promise that we can trust him. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. And we could go on and sing the rest of the song. Maybe we ought to all rise up and sing that. I don't rise up yet. Maybe in a minute. But the other thing I want to see here is we're saying true faith will overcome circumstances is the last thing we need to see. In these desperate cases, all three were resolved how quickly? Immediately. Immediately, in a moment, they were all resolved by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God can change any circumstance. Sometimes we don't really believe that in a moment. Or I would say even overnight. So you don't have to turn there, but if you haven't read it in a while, you might want to read it later on. In 2 Kings 6 and 7, you know, Elisha, somebody talked about that, Ben, about, or somebody did about the eyes being opened, da 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 So when he did that, and the army of the Lord, they blinded the Syrian army, Elisha and his servant, and he, and he let him go. The king of Israel wanted to kill them all. No, we're going to let him go. Well, in letting him go, they came back and they surrounded the city of Samaria, and they made Samaria become in a severe famine. So bad that you have women coming to the king of Israel and saying, look, I got a problem here. I made a, I made a deal with this woman over here. Uh, last night we ate my kid, and tonight we're supposed to eat her kid, but she went and hid the kid. It's not fair. That's what went on in the story. And the king is like, man, if I find Elisha, he let those guys live, I'll kill him. Right? That's what happened. Well, anyways, so Elisha gets a word from the Lord, and here's the word he says. So things look as bad and bleak as they ever could no hope in sight. And Elisha says, tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. In other words, it'll all be over, literally overnight. And the guy that was the right-hand man of the king of Israel, he hears that. And he doesn't have any faith. And he says, behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might these things be. And Elisha's like, you shouldn't have said that. You should not have doubted God's word because what's going to happen is tomorrow you'll see this word come to pass, but you're not going to live to eat any of it. And that's what happened. The next day, these lepers, they're like, we're going to die as lepers. We don't have nothing to lose. We'll just put ourselves into the Assyrian camp, let them do with us what they will. And they get there, and what had happened overnight, the Lord had caused the sound, it says, of chariots and horses and of a great host. That's what he caused the Syrians to hear. They fled and abandoned everything. And here, there's not a Syrian left. These four lepers stumble into the camp. They're like, wow, look at this. And they start eating. And they're like, wait a minute. Their conscience is convicting them. We can't do this. This isn't right. They're stuffing their pockets with silver, gold, 
chicken leg in their mouth. Oh, we can't do this. We got to go back and tell the rest of them. And they do. They go back. They tell the porters. The porter tells the king of Israel. And they go and check it out. And they find out it's exactly like these guys said. And more to the point, exactly like God said. Overnight. A complete change. And that's what we need to remember. That's the God we serve. He can change your circumstance and mine overnight. Praise God, and He will. Nothing is impossible with our God. He will literally open the windows of heaven if He has to, to keep His Word. So do you need a miracle for healing? Some in here do. It can happen overnight. The issue of blood can stop right now, like with that woman. It can. Great financial need, poverty, He can change it all overnight. We've heard many testimonies along that way, right? Your marriage is headed for disaster. Hopeless. No way out. God can come down and change anybody's heart that quick. And I'm not just such easy preacher talk, but he can. (laughs) He really can. That's what we're seeing right here. That if he can't, then Mark chapter 5 is not true. Isn't that what we're reading about? That's right, man. Three cases here, bad as they could ever get, and he changes them just like that. So Jesus is a Savior that we can trust. Amen? Amen. He really is. That's what this Gospel of Mark is all about. It's the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like we said last week, he's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll do the same. He has dominion over demons disease and death he does so we can put our lives in his in his hands can't we and overcome the obstacles of the world and the devil that are put in our way the obstacles as we've talked about tonight of pride of unbelief and negative circumstances and then we'll see that we're in the care of a loving powerful God that loves us as individuals he does and he'll do what he's promised if we in humility will trust him amen Amen. the life that I now live I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me can we say that Amen. amen let's pray heavenly father we just thank you once again Lord for the word and as you revealed your nature, your character as put forth in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. We can see your heart through him. And we just thank you so much, Lord, that you will do what you say, that you do care about us as individuals. And as we put our trust in you, you will manifest your power in our lives in all these situations. And Father, I just ask you'll work on all of us, Lord, that we can get our consecration, our seeking you to the point, Lord, our faith is there. And we can trust you for all things that come our way and know that you will be faithful. Amen. And I just thank you that you'll do that for this church here. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.